It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 31st, 2019, the But Every Politician's Gonna Say That edition. That's a quote from our own dear John Dickerson. I am oh, David yeah. Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. It is my birthday. Happy birthday Woo-hoo! to me. Happy birthday to it's me. Happy birthday, Yay, dear me. David's birthday. Those voices were, of course, John Dickerson of CBS This Morning in New York and Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine in New Haven, I'm guessing. Maybe New York. I don't know. New Haven. Haven. On this week's show, why has Howard Schultz's trial balloon about running for president as an independent enraged so many Democrats and so many journalists? Why didn't enrage so many of our colleagues? Then a fascinating profile of the most important person in American politics, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader. Then... Performative workaholism. Why do you young people love work so much? Or why do you young people just pretend to love work so much? What's up with that? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, we've got two live shows coming up on Wednesday, March 27th at the Lincoln Theater here in Washington, D.C. We're going to do a live show, which will be coupled with a Emily Bazelon book signing, book promotion, book talking, preview, book preview so go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for that show on March 27th at the Lincoln Theater. And we've got another live show on Friday, April 12th in Charlottesville, Virginia, as part of the Tom Tom Festival, a big festival about small cities. We are going to be doing a show in Charlottesville, also John's alma mater. We will be moderating. So slate.com. You will be muttering, 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 and moderating. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to both those shows, March 27th and April 12th. Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, still its largest shareholder, announced that he is considering an independent run for president. It's part of a his flog the book tour. Uh, he's got a new book f- from the ground up, which is, I think, a p- coffee pun. But as people point out, it should be from the grounds up. But whatever. Emily, I it, I did have the thought that maybe you want to gin up interest in your book by by announcing that you're possibly going to run for president. Maybe as that will get you candidate. on 60 Minutes mm-hmm. and CBS this morning. As an independent, can, independent I'm missing sure. some yeah. billions of dollars. That's the only problem mm. with their plan. The only problem. $4.3 short. So, John Dickerson, this guy has gotten a huge amount of attention, mm-hmm. not least from from CBS this morning, where he, he sat for an interview with, with you. Um, this announcement of a possible announcement has really set people on the left in particular off. I mean, I think we can I'll, – I'll preview a few of the possible answers, the entitlement of some billionaire just sort of swanning, saying I don't have to go through this process. I'm just going to – I'm just going to do this. The egomania of somebody saying I have the solutions because I was a good CEO even though he doesn't seem to have done any significant thinking about public policy. And of course, there's this irritation that he might disrupt the election. But you, you now you yeah. now you give those answers, but in your own Dickersonian words. Yeah, no, I think you put your finger <laughs> on there. I think I would also add one other thing, which is that people who – thought that the press would shake itself out of its 
affection for things that are kind of elite and flashy after the 2016 race see the press doing it all over again. He was, you know, he's getting all this attention. Why are you giving him this platform? You're just, you know, making the same, same mistake you made with Donald Trump. I think um, th- on that one, I'm less, you know, he's created an iconic brand in America. He's got a whole lot of money and, you know, he's trying to go do something that's um, incredibly difficult. But in a time of where all standards are thrown up in the air, uh, where the window is open for, you know, first-time uh, congresswomen to con- basically control the conversation in the Democratic Party for long stretches of the news cycle. He's an interesting and fascinating character, but he stepped into his moment and was not, uh, you know, basically didn't have answers to why you and why this disruption. And I think a lot of the political analysts correctly identified his view of centrism misunderstands the nature of the electorate. So I would add those to your um, list and everything you say, everything you say is true. So Emily, I'm going to read you a quote from Howard Schultz about why, why he's running for president. To unite the country, for us to come together, to do everything we can to realize that the promise of America is for everyone. And, w- and to whom did he give that answer? He said that to, he said that to uh, some hack, Dickerson, some Dickersonian hack. He said that to John on CBS This Morning. And John's, John's quite apropos response, immediate response was, but every politician's going to say that. So d- what, has Schultz, is Schultz bringing anything to the table That's it, other than being a, a, big, a great big pile of money? I mean, I am so skeptical. I'm like allergic to this kind of candidacy for all the reasons you laid out in the beginning. So I would argue, no, he is not. I mean, I suppose one could pause and give him credit for business acumen. But there are so many problems with Starbucks in terms of the way it um, sees and treats its workers that it's it's a struggle for me to even – see that as an asset. And I just can't get past the arrogance and the irritation I have with all the attention he's getting. Nate Silver, someone pointed out that if he was running in the Democratic primary, like various other people who are trying to position themselves as, you know, sensible, centrist, fiscal, conservative, social liberals, i.e. Michael Bloomberg, etc., no one would be giving him any of this attention. And I just think the, like, romance of some fake independent candidacy as a reason to get lots of play is annoying and and not deserved. Uh, I think he would get the attention, but only for one beat. And that's why, you know, the question I had asked is, okay, you're getting all this grief from Democrats, but you've got your moment. So here's your moment. What's your big idea? And as David said, you know. Yeah. And then what do you say? Nothing. Right. So that seems to me to be, you know, obviously a huge flaw to miss your grand opening, you know, especially for somebody who arguably could have a whole set of skills. I mean, Starbucks, whatever you may think about the quality of their coffee, has been an extraordinary success, global success story for somebody who started living in the projects. He's got an amazing personal story and he's created a brand in a, I mean, he convinced people to take a drink that they took, that they were drinking anyway and was a normal part of their life to reorient their entire life, the shape of the neighborhoods they live in and the music they listen to, the kind of food they eat, all based on his theories and his – so he has rewired American life and global life, you could argue. 
So he's got some skills somewhere. And you could imagine somebody saying, I basically, I want to do a version of that with politics and then actually have thought through things to create a set of ideas that might be attractive and appealing to people. But he, he didn't really use that in his opening moment. And uh, if he can't apply that in this crucial moment, it seems to me that he's just undermined if there was a rationale for his candidacy, he's just undermined it by not knowing how to seize his opening gambit. Yeah. So th- this um, Schultz's actually announcement and the and the fufara around it and the irritation around it actually has has revealed two things to me, which were were new, which were exciting. One and John Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine hit on this in particular is that I had not recognized until until this Schultz. Uh, announcement that there is no constituency for social liberalism tied to fiscal conservatism. Except there for are you, basically perhaps. no voters in that quadrant, except for me. It's like yeah. me, people like me, Michael Bloombergy types. There's hardly anyone else. They are but swing voters. That, are play that out for people. Well, so so there are plenty of people in this country who are socially liberal and fiscally liberal. They are cl- classic liberals, l- leftists. There are plenty of people who are socially conservative and fiscally conservative people who and th- those are your classic part of the right wing of american life people who are worried about marriage equality and but also don't want the want the government out of their lives and concerned about second amendment rights and where trump did really well is this other quadrant which is people who are socially conservative but fiscally liberal people who want you know who rely on social security who rely on medicare who rely on the protections of the state but they tend to be rural and they tend to be quite socially conservative churchgoers and Trump did incredibly well in that group. But there is no but if you look at the map of there is nobody except a few, you know, rich white people, people in, who in the Northeast. The who is, <laughs> they all people who take, take the, the Acela. Acela. That's what I think. Yeah, the the Acela, Acela, Acela liberals. It's people who would who 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 think yes, we well we need a limited more limited government, but of course we you know we want immigrants, we want marriage equality, we want uh, you know people to 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 have lots of dignity, and you know we don't really care that much about guns, and so that but that constituency is just is trivially small, but that is the one that Schultz is aiming narrowly at, and it's the one that Bloomberg realized that there wasn't. Bloomberg has realized like I can't win. Just by running to that constituency, I cut that, and, and and so Bloomberg kind of gave up on this mirage of an independent candidacy. So that's one realization. Wait, can we stop there? Because I want to unpack that a little bit. Then can you go on to your second one? Sure. Because I was reading a column or something by David Frum saying these are really important voters. Like they're the ones who swung various congressional races in Virginia. Well, like, yeah. I mean, if you're just trying to win Congress from a particular district that has a lot of wealthy people in it who take the Acela, then that looks like a real constituency. But nationally speaking, it's really not. And um, it's I because because I well, think a lot of people in the media are part of this. We, and I, not me, but they um, overestimate its importance, no? Well, but I don't think it's just the Acela. I mean, um, you know, it's basically what he would, Frum was arguing, and I don't think you can't build a candidacy out of this, I don't think. But what he was arguing is there are suburban voters who don't want to vote for Donald Trump again. But also, if Elizabeth Warren, let's say, is the nominee of the Democratic Party, aren't going to have anywhere to go. And so this is the group that would go to Howard Schultz if he were, by the way, he has to also be like a a sufficiently compelling candidate. And his candidacy built on deficit reduction, which is something that there seems to be no appetite for except. um, Not even by him. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, he, he's like exactly. he's like for deficit reduction, but you name any proposed deficit reduction, he's like, no, no, not that. Um, we wouldn't do that. And but but so I don't think that that's a. I guess the point is that's a crucial constituency. That's the group that voted for Trump, even though they didn't like him because they were worried about the Supreme Court. That's the group that didn't show up in eighteen. Um, but but just even if they all went over to Howard Schultz, you need that needs to be put on top of an existing base of a party. And that's what Schultz doesn't have is an existing base of a party to to uh, to build that home. for. Also, it's one thing to say that those voters are up for grabs and another to imagine that if he is a remote third party candidate, they're going to throw away their votes on him. Yeah, right. So, I mean, Nate Silver made an interesting point, which is that it's actually it's even though Democrats are so up in arms around around this, it's it's ambiguous whether in the long run, whether Schultz draws more from potential voters for a Democratic candidate or from potential Trump voters. I think that the thesis that Silver laid out is the one that John just said, which is that maybe he's an off-ramp for people who can't bring themselves to vote for a Democrat but really don't want to vote for Trump and that there may be more of those than the reverse. I think the other thing that the Schultz boomlet has gotten to is the difficulty. Why is it that third parties have such a problem in presidential politics. And it's because, of course, the winner-take-all nature of the election and the winner-take-all nature of electoral votes. Um, but also that this idea of aversion voting, which is that people end up not really voting affirmatively for their person, but they really vote to block the person or the party that they're worried about. And that means that people t- that people are more, much more strategic about their vote than we maybe give them credit for. And therefore, it's very unlikely that they're going to make a useless vote for Schultz when there really is there's a strategic vote to block Trump or block Warren at stake. I mean, they, there's this this notion this point out that people say in 2016 we had these two memorably disliked candidates. Both Trump and Hillary Clinton had huge disfavorable ratings, and yet the third party voters, third party candidates of whom there were a bunch, only got six percent of the vote. That's because people strategically voted to block to to, right. to block the one they didn't want. Can I add one tiny little thing to your earlier uh, list for what irritates Democrats? I think another thing that irritates Democrats, which is connected to the media point I was making, is that sh- is that Schultz is attacking Democratic ideas as being, you know, hugely disastrous. Yeah. And, and, and what Democrats worry is that here he's getting this platform to beat up on their ideas. And even if he goes nowhere, you know, he's closing the Overton window, to use one yeah. uh, overused yeah. phrase. But he's, you know, he's trying to make it seem out, totally crazy and outside the norm for ideas the Democrats are arguing. These are the kinds of ideas that need to be talked about in a country that faces significant problems, whether it's on health care, income, inequality, or climate. Yeah, it's, it's fucking maddening the way he calls them not American or the way he says we can't afford a Medicare for all. It's like, you, why can't we afford Medicare for all? It's just, we, it's just redistributing how we're paying for health care. We're already paying for health care for most of the country. We just do it in a bad way. Of course we can afford it. And it's, the it's, well, and you can have infuriatingly stupid. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. That we can't we can't have a, a system where there's seventy percent marginal tax rates. No country's ever thrived. Well, yeah, the, the America you grew up in, bro, that was the one that thrived with seventy percent marginal tax rates on the very wealthy. So deal with it. I I know I always come back to Bloomberg, and I have this kind of obviously my my attraction to Bloomberg is is off base. But that Michael Bloomberg is a very serious person who is as a politician as a political leader is like tried a whole bunch of ideas, and it's like I'm a rich yes, he's a rich guy with that same sense of rich guy entitlement. Like I've got I'm going to solve problems, but you know what, Michael Bloomberg 
has taken those ideas seriously and has tried in all these various meaningful ways to actually solve those problems. And you can say the way he went about it is wrong or stupid or or didn't succeed. But man, he's taken it seriously and he's taken the public policy process seriously. To For Howard Schultz to show up with his $4.3 billion and his book and to and to not have done the fucking groundwork is it's very Trump-like. It's really it's really maddening. I'm so glad you called him out, John. The problem is not that he wants to run. The problem is that he wants to run and doesn't and doesn't hasn't done the work. And, and by the way, I didn't call him out. I just asked him basically the most basic question in politics. Yep. Yes. But then you pointed out that he had a shitty answer, which was satisfying. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And today we're going to talk about a story that has fired up the internet. It's a story about B. Smith, the restaurant entrepreneur, the kind of lifestyle brand figure who really had her real prominence 20 years ago. And she is now suffering from Alzheimer's and her husband has a girlfriend and that girlfriend is part of the public life that that B. Smith and her husband now lead. And it's a very interesting story about love and dementia and uh, how how to handle a public life. So slate.com slash GabFest Plus to hear us talk about that, to become a member, and to hear bonus segments on other Slate podcasts. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now we're joined by Charlie Homans, who's the politics editor of the New York Times Magazine, Emily's very own dear colleague, because Charlie has a... a my he- worlds are coming together in such a wonderful way. Three of my favorite uh, people. Uh, at last. Three? At last. He's, she's not here. counting herself. Oh, oh, you're not counting <laughs> yourself. <laughs> I got a little confused there for a second. Um, anyway, so uh-huh. Charlie has a, a magisterial, huge profile of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the most consequential figure in American politics, arguably, uh, on the cover of last week's magazine. So we thought we'd have him on to talk about that profile, to talk about McConnell. Welcome to the GabFest, Charlie. What is the thesis of your story I think it's really sort of uh, that McConnell really has become this em- enormously consequential figure. And I think you could fairly argue the most consequential Senate majority leader in a generation if you factor in the way that he's changed just how people even think about what this job does. You know, and, and during the Trump presidency so far, he's amassed this quite remarkable legacy, mostly through just appointing a ton of people to the federal bench and done it really in spite of there being uh, you know, not much prospect for legislation, per se, in the Senate right now. Um, but all this has come at this, uh, you know, I think, substantial cost. He's really believed in these, uh, you know, the institution that he's been a part of for, for many years now. So and obviously now he's, you know, tied at the hip to the, the president, who's clearly somebody who really seems to want to burn a lot of that down. And, and you saw this with the shutdown, obviously, most recently. But it seems like there's a um, – did McConnell make a devil's bargain here? Because he's he not only has been able to get uh, a lot done in the judiciary, which, as you point out um, – essentially locks in a version of Washington where you go around the legislative body and you figure all these fights are going to take place in the 
judicial branch, Republicans would say, well, they were taking place there anyway, and they have been since the Warren court. And so we're just finally doing there what what liberals had done through the 50s and 60s. But I've always been intrigued by the argument, which I think is highly plausible, that when he issued the press release within an hour of uh, Antonin Scalia's death saying that they were going to block whatever President Obama put forward. And then President Trump, who is out of sync with his party on most things, was completely in lockstep with that at the South Carolina debate just an hour later, even naming uh, cleverly some people he might put on the court, which sent a signal to, to Republican voters, that the idea that for all of his flaws – if Donald Trump were the nominee, it would mean that you'd have a Republican president who could name people to the court. That was the reason for a lot of voters to go ahead and vote for him, that that was all orchestrated essentially by McConnell. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Do you think he has qualms about not so much the fact that he's made lawmaking a judicial thing and and weakened the Senate, but does he feel qualms about the fact that he's empowered um, and, and created the record that a lot of people point to when they say, well, I don't like Donald Trump does X, Y, and Z, but boy, I love what he's done on 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 judges. You know, it's interesting. He kind of dances around that, and I talked to him for for quite a while on a few occasions for the you know reporting this story. And and I asked him at one point pretty directly, uh, you know, what do you think about your legacy being tied to to Trump's legacy? And he sort of disputed that very premise. He said, you know, I don't think that's the case. I, you know, my legacy. Yeah, was was really I, I was sort of building you know this this thing that I built even before Trump became president, and the most consequential thing I did was before he was elected. And I asked him what that was, and he said it was uh, blocking you know keeping up in the Scalia seat, uh, blocking the Merrick Garland appointment. And so it's I mean it's a very interesting when you try to untangle all this, it's pretty interesting, right? Because he also makes the claim I think pretty plausibly that that decision helped get Trump Trump elected for all the reasons that you were just talking about. So. He's both kind of trying to distance his own legacy from Trump's, but also you know, wants, I think, on some level to claim credit for him becoming president in the first place. One of the things that Charlie gets at so well in the piece is the idea that the, the Senate as a positive legislative force is is over, certainly in deep, deep decline, that, that, it, that what McConnell has done is sort of said, OK, it's a blocking force and it's a confirmation force, for, particularly for judicial branch officials. And it's not, it's not a uh, place that is going to devise and create grand legislation. I mean, I can't, it's hard to imagine something getting through the Senate on 70 votes of consequence ever, ever again. Was this inevitable? Was it, was the Senate as a legislative body doomed regardless of whether McConnell was there? Or is this something that McConnell has caused to to happen much faster or much more aggressively than it needed to happen? I think the answer is sort of both. I mean, it is like, there's this interesting and I think pretty persuasive theory that really, a lot of what ended up happening to Congress in the you know, since 1980 was a function of this sort of broader realignment of of American politics that really brought the parties into much more parity than they'd been in before. And there's a great book that I mentioned in the piece uh, by Francis Lee called uh, Political Scientist in Maryland uh, called Insecure Majorities that makes this point that once you had this sort of conservative realignment to the Republican Party – uh, and the Republican Party stopped being a sort of terminal minority in Congress, which it basically was since the Depression. Uh, you had this just massive shift in the incentives where now there was really not you know, any real political incentive to cooperate with the other party. And it took people a while to figure this out. But eventually, you know, and in some cases pretty quickly, you saw sort of, you know, indications that this logic was already taking root, you know, in the 80s. And obviously, 
that accelerated a lot under McConnell. Um, I think you could probably argue that it was a matter of time before somebody did that, and it was probably going to be Republican just because structurally the Senate, you know, if you want to pass sweeping laws, they, you know, as, as McConnell you know, himself pointed out in, in the story, you know, these great sweeping comp- accomplishments of the Senate that we point to are often are mostly liberal democratic accomplishments, that if you don't want, you know, giant new federal programs, then a not functioning Senate serves you pretty well. Um, and, and he sort of dove in and really you know, advanced the ball on that. Um, it is an interesting hypothetical, like whether, you know, how quickly we would have arrived at this point or whether we would have arrived at this point without him. I think we probably would have arrived at this point. Um, I don't think we would have. Yeah, that, that doesn't take anything away from him in terms of being the person who, you know, more than anybody else, I think, brought us to that point. What, I'm, what interests me about Mitch McConnell and then about even Donald Trump more broadly is – um, did they create the conditions of uh, politics of the moment or were, did they just grab it and practice politics as it is, not as it should be? And so when McConnell blocked uh, Garland before he even knew his name, he was relying on a dubious uh, idea that there was a kind of some kind of Senate tradition um, where you didn't um, confirm people in a presidential year. So that's not true. Robert Griffin tried to make this case in 1968, and even the, the leader of his party at the, at the time, Everett Dirksen, um, didn't support it. But nevertheless, Mitch McConnell, because he was in the majority, and as somebody once explained, the thing you need to know about Mitch McConnell is he has an extraordinarily high threshold, pain threshold. He said this is a Senate tradition. Republicans, and as Charlie was pointing out, now because they are all in lockstep in a way they weren't in 1968 when Abe Fortas was elevated to chief justice and and Homer Thornberry was was nominated by um, Johnson, that Republicans are immediately all in alignment. I think Susan Collins spoke out against blocking Garland, but that was that was hardly it. Everybody was immediately singing from the same hymnal that that that, that uh, whoever the president nominated shouldn't even get a hearing. That all had changed, and McConnell grabbed that. And so it seems like he was a smart power practitioner in in the moment, recognizing the, the situation as it stood, that the old politics of a, of a now-let-us-reason-together Senate are gone, and they have died for a variety of different reasons, the death of split-ticket voting, the alignments, the, you know, the ideological rigidity of the parties, the rise of interest groups, all of those things have created something where if you tried to to operate the Senate in the kind of a more old-fashioned way, you would be trying to do something that's just not possible in politics today. So he operates in politics as it is, not as it should be. Emily? So I want to think about the implications for the Supreme Court and the federal bench in all of this, because this is where I think you see that McConnell's turn is not just changing the institution of the Senate, but also the third branch. And if you're thinking in partisan terms, which obviously he was when he blocked the Garland appointment, it's was a brilliant move. It was ballsy. Um, it seemed like there would be a political price to pay for it. There wasn't. Um, it indeed did probably help Trump get elected. And I have to say, I think when McConnell tries to separate himself from that, that seems just like convenient denialism to me. But now we have the situation with the Supreme Court where McConnell has, I think, really taking a, taken a wrecking ball to 50 or 60 years of assumptions about Supreme Court appointments, were, which were that 
Yes, the president um, nominates. And so there is going to be politics always injected in some way into Supreme Court nominations. But we did have a tradition in which you could have a president make an appointment and have a Senate controlled by the opposing party still confirm that person. And as a result of that dynamic, we had a series of justices, I would count 10 of them, who did not behave in the expected fashion when you look at the party that appointed them. We had people who drifted way left. You know, Justice Souter is the classic example of this. And we had people who just like stuck to some kind of center, like Byron White, who was appointed by a Democrat or, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor or in some ways Justice Kennedy. And I think that tradition is over. I'm not sure how a president gets an appointee, uh, gets a judicial appointment through with the Senate controlled by the other party. And That has immediate implications for this, you know, I think, dramatic shift to the right that we are seeing on the court begin to unfold. But also going forward, it just changes the relationship of the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary to the other branches. And we haven't really begun to grapple with that yet. And when I was reading your piece, I mean, I it's too much, I suppose, to ask to expect McConnell to be candid about any of that. But I just don't see any way in which he recognizes those implications. Well, he, he likes that outcome, as you as you pointed out when you started. Right. He likes the fact that it's a right. I mean, except that if the court then, you know, becomes this total political football, like, is this something that Republicans just believe in because they've seen the court as this inherently political instrument for many years? And so, like, good, if the country sees them all as a bunch of politicians in robes, all the better. Or is there some cost that we can agree that is not, you know, that we don't see in partisan terms that has a more kind of civic general valence? Well, one thing that was interesting to me in the reporting, and this didn't end up in the piece, but you know, very early on in McConnell's career, he was a staffer, uh, you know, specifically assigned to judiciary stuff for Marlo Cook, who was this uh, sort of moderate to probably liberal, I would say, uh, Kentucky senator, Republican senator. Uh, when the Hainsworth and Carswell nominations uh, mm-hmm. that, that Nixon put, put forward that both ran aground uh, came up in the Senate in, I think it was 1970. And he wrote this actually very interesting law review article, I think the following year, kind of. But you know, McConnell kind of tried to draw out of the wreckage of this an actual standard for what the Senate should do uh, with Supreme, you know, what the actual role of advise and consent was if you really drilled down into sort of when they should uh, do X, Y, and Z re- relative to these nominations. He still sort of cites this article once in a while. And when we talked about it in the conversation, he he started laughing and, and talking about, you know, because you know, I mentioned I'd read it and he said, yeah, it was pretty naive, wasn't it? And and I think he he kind of came around to this view, he told me, and I think probably watching the the Bork nomination run aground and the and then the Clarence Thomas hearings, I think, informed a lot of this. But that really, it was sort of futile to draw any sort of like real empirical, you know, fixed lesson in terms of what the Senate's supposed to do with advise and consent. That really, it's always going to be whatever the Senate, depending on you know the politics of the Senate at the time and their relationship with the president. Like advise and consent is always going to kind of be whatever they want to say it is from time to time. And I think he has this totally sort of real policy notion of, of what you're doing as, as the Senate you know, when these nominations come forward and, now. And that's why they point to what Biden said about Bork when Scalia was confirmed. He told the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, you know, if they sent up another uh, person like Scalia, and I think he may have even mentioned Bork by name, he said, you know, I would have to confirm them. But then, of course, when Bork was actually named and it's in the middle of a presidential campaign, 
Biden changed his view, Biden's substantive argument was, look, this is replacing Powell. This is now a seat that is the swing seat on the court. And before, when I compared Bork and said I would vote for another Scalia, I was talking about an associate justice who was not going to be the tipping point on individual, you know, on every single decision. And so that changes the nature of the seat and therefore changes my standard. McConnell, having seen that, said, well, we're going to change the standard. Um, He claims that this was a part of Senate tradition, which which it just isn't. He's not being uh, honest about the idea that that, uh, you know, the Senate did not have a, uh, you know, 230 year tradition of not confirming people in presidential election years. And we also don't know what it's like to live in a country where there's so little reason to think that the court deserves to have the power of what we call judicial review. Like, why do we have nine people in robes given the power to interpret the Constitution if they are merely politicians? That we just don't – that is not the modern conception of the Supreme Court. The court has had a different image. It has had higher public approval ratings as a result. And it has basically – you know, by tacking back and forth, essentially stuck to positions that most of the country accepts, right? It has found some kind of, not in every decision, Bush versus Gore is an exception, Citizens United is an exception. But by and large, it kind of moves with the climate, if not the weather, right? That's like one of the famous ways of thinking about the Supreme Court. And the what you were just laying out, you know, both of you, we just don't know what that looks like. And um, and when we do uh, live with it, we are going to be living with McConnell's legacy. I want to turn to McConnell's character because one thing, Charlie, that I think is so interesting about him, which you get at, is that he he is unusual, not quite unique, but unusual in Washington for his lack of interest in flashiness, his lack of charisma, his willful lack of charisma, and his willingness to be a spear catcher, his willingness to be the person who just takes the – I mean, the John's point about his pain threshold. He's the person who, who's willing to say the thing and catch all the flack for the difficult position that he wants to pin the Republican Party to, which, which he thinks will be strategically valuable in the long run. He's, in, in some ways, he's, he reminds me a bit of, of Dick Cheney, who had some of that same role, which is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be back room. I'm going to get a lot of stuff done and I don't mind being a villain because my my ambitions are not really to be to it's not that I don't want to go down in history because it's clear McConnell does want to go down in history but I don't need to go down in history because people are uh, adoring crowds are are loving on me the way that most politicians crave that attention of adoring crowds. So I guess my question is like how much of his strength comes from the fact that he is he is willing to take punishment and and to be publicly vilified in ways that most politicians, because they're egomaniacs who want love, are not willing to. I think a lot of it. I mean, I I, I do think that you know one of the one of the kind of underappreciated things in Washington is that you can really wield an, an immense amount of power and get quite far if you just don't really care if people like you or not. Um, I mean, I think that was the lesson of Cheney. I think that was the lesson of Harry Reid to some degree. And I think it's definitely the lesson of McConnell. I mean, he ascended within the Republican caucus in the Senate really on account of his sort of championing, his willingness to be the sort of impediment to campaign finance reform for the better part of, you know, a decade and a half. Yeah, he was going to get beaten up by like the editorial page of any number of newspapers. 
yeah, but and it was something that if you polled people, you know, the average person, yeah, would you like campaign finance reform? Like, yes, most people would like campaign finance reform, but are they going to vote him out of office on it? No, they're not. And McConnell was sort of the one who was willing to to step out there and and play spear catcher, as he put it, um, and that earned him a huge amount of gratitude from from his caucus, and I think really sort of it made him both a media figure because he was out on TV all the time defending his position on on this because nobody else was. And it also, you know, established him within the party as sort of a, you know, figure to watch. And then you, if you jump ahead to the Obama years, he did that again. And he was sort of the one who was really willing to step out there and just do what he could to block the Obama legislative agenda, which he decided quite early on, you know, by the time inauguration happened, that there was not much common ground to be had on this agenda. And, uh, you know, again, it made him a big kind of public villain. And he sort of leaned into that in a way because he knew it was to the long term, you know, political advantage of his party. I have one last question, Charlie. Did you, in your conversations with McConnell, come away with an idea of whether there was some line Trump could cross that McConnell would, that would be to go too far for McConnell? And what was it? Kind of. I mean, it's, it's, well, it's hard. I asked him that question, actually, because I, one of the interviews I had with him was right after the, uh, you know, the Senate had voted on this, uh, this resolution, uh, you know, limiting U.S. involvement in the the war, the Saudi war in Yemen, um, which was something that McConnell voted against, but he brought it up for a vote, and a lot of Republicans voted for it, and it passed. and And I asked him if there were other bright lines where he saw congressional Republicans and himself breaking with you know Trump, Trump and the Trump administration. He brought up NATO as something, you know, any any sort of real move to bail on on you know the United States historic alliances. Um, was a was a bright line for him. You saw some of that, you know, not long after this, uh, you know, Jim Mattis quit, you know, with his public letter, essentially making this exact point that he did not, you know, he felt there were irreconcilable differences between him and Trump on the matter of alliances. And and McConnell put out what was for him a pretty strongly worded statement in favor of that. Um, and you're led to this question, though, of like what it would really mean for him to break with Trump on something. We saw a lot of this, of course, with the shutdown um, and and some of these moves that he's now making post shutdown to kind of limit, you know, hoping to limit the, you know the chances of these things happening again. I think he's established what the bright lines are for him and you know relative to Trump, but it's still not really clear what he would do in the event that those were really emphatically crossed in some way. Charlie Homans is the politics editor of the New York Times Magazine. Read his profile of Mitch McConnell, which was in last week's magazine. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Come back again soon. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slow burn. Hope to see you there. Aaron Griffith, a writer the Times asked the question, 
this past week. Why are millennials in particular so performative about loving their work and being workaholics? Why why do they have such a public passion for their work and how did this happen? I think we ought to begin with a huge caveat, which is that, that the tranche of people that, that Griffith is talking about, the socioeconomic tranche of people, are people who are basically in information professions with college degrees, they're urban, they're educated, they have careers. And actually, and we'll get to this, like the real thing that's going on for most people is job insecurity for people who are, don't have education, don't have access to great jobs, and job misery if you are not educated and advantaged. But let's talk about what the phenomenon that she identifies, Emily, which is that why are people showing off their workaholism? Well, she has this great – she has like a number of excellent phrases. One of them was glamour toil. The notion that we've kind of incorporated these ideas of um, – from exercise, right? Like from a Nike campaign, um, that you're always supposed to be trying harder, that you never stop like – pressing the accelerator. And that's how you measure your worth. And everything is supposed to channel into your work. Um, so it's, <laughs> I mean, her her critique of it, which is, I think, a clear one, is that one, you, you turn yourself into this kind of perfect worker bee where you're benefiting um, your employer, but you think you're doing it in order to, like, maximize your own self-worth. And there's a sort of diluted quality to it. And I, I had a couple of reactions to it. I mean, one is that I completely see, like, the problem of going way too far in this direction and the number of hours per week that she has people talking about working seemed totally insane to me, like 80, 90, 130. I, I don't even – I can't even figure out how that's possible really. But then there's also this sadness I feel about it, which is that – I think for a lot of us, and I mean, I'm not, I'm maybe I'm too old to really get this, but it seems like it's important to acknowledge that there is a way in which work brings people tremendous satisfaction and sense of value and self worth. And so, if we start thinking of it completely cynically, every time we like go, you know, do something over 40 hours a week or beyond the call of duty that benefits our employer, that will also be a kind of loss. And so it seems like what's missing here is some kind of balance as usual. It, and it also seemed like she was talking about a kind of generational phenomenon. And now I'm also going to bring in an essay in BuzzFeed by um, Anne Helen Peterson, who was writing specifically about millennials. And in both of these pieces, you see this sense that the generation of people who are younger than us have been taught to be the perfect workers, the per perfect performers um, because of this sense of scarcity, that they're being frightened into constantly trying to exceed their own expectations because they live in this shrunken job market in this world in which they're not going to be doing as well as their parents. And so they're trying to protect themselves. There is this way that everything – is performative. The, 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 one of the very terrible things about social media is the way that it makes everything performative. And so why wouldn't work therefore become performative? In a, in a, if you are chronicling your life, if you are trying to present a kind of idealized version of your life, as so many people do try to do in social media, why wouldn't that spill into work whereby you try to present yourself as the as a worker bee as a as an idealistic uh, worker i mean there, there's this really interesting podcast i've been listening to the dream which is about multi-level marketing companies and one of the things that multi-level marketing companies where nobody is really making any money and they're all working hard it's all show you're constantly showing 
like, oh, I'm having an awesome time selling these these stockings to people. Look at me having this awesome time selling stockings. And it's completely performative and really deeply sad because it doesn't have – it actually has no connection to whether you're succeeding or whether you really are happy. You just have to show that you're happy. But there's there's so much about about modern social media life that, that, that encourages you to fake – happiness and this is this is just what's a multi-level marketing company um herbalife amway a company that direct okay does like direct Ponzi sales schemes, effectively okay some of the yes that's 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 one way you can <laughs> you your phrase not mine uh, mary Kay cosmetics uh so sorry i'm just gonna keep on a roll and then john can interrupt me but the 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 other thing that um I don't think that performative workaholism is like a really big problem for American life, like or for yeah. the American worker, especially young American workers. Like, what do we have? What is the problem? The problem is that there are lots of people who have incredibly shitty, precarious jobs. The precariat that who have service jobs, warehouse jobs, with filled with drudgery and coldness, and they're dehumanizing. That the people are working jobs which which don't lead anywhere, don't have a, a career destination. That is a, that seems like a real problem. The problem that that people are being workaholics does not feel to me on the same level as all the people who don't have college degrees who are in a in an Amazon warehouse outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and are on ridiculous quotas for whatever they need to do there. That seems like something to worry about. I love the idea of the precariat, by the way. Yeah, that that's, was um, great. That's not my term. That's a that's a real that's oh. a real term. Some other people have well, Will we it. still like it? I love it here. Yeah. I, I find this all, you know, this is all lifestyle. You're supposed to have this wonderful kind of purposeful, mindful, constantly uh, moving towards the alpha and omega um, life now. That this, So this feels like... Um, I don't know. It's like the man bun of work. It's 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 like a stylish thing, um, you know. So you go to yoga in the morning, and then you have like some kind of drink that has some milk that's made from things that aren't actually naturally associated with milk, like almonds or cashews or something. And then you go and you have your recyclable clothes that you wear to this common workspace. Uh, in which the furniture is kind of com- constantly plush and kind of misshapen, and you unfurl your man bun and you do your work that is um, meaningful and um, all performative, uh, and then you go have uh, you know significant time spent in the company of other people who are photographing you, photographing them, and the whole thing looks wonderful, especially when you pick the right filter for it. But this is a pretty rarefied world in which the the joyous work um meaningful life thing is actually a part of your sense of yourself i think as you point out david most other people have work experiences that are just very much different than this i think maybe john is going to write the next david foster wallace novel with all of those (laughs) images that you just put forward um can i just say make an observation quickly I, i know i'm totally interrupting you but about both of you which i find remarkable and actually it's also sort of true of me which is Actually, both of you are huge workaholics that you both – all of us, I think, define ourselves very heavily around who we are as workers. And both of you are – you two are the two most productive people I know. But neither of you is performatively workaholic. Uh, well, mine and, comes from a much more 
much deeper place, which is that I don't like to be alone with my own thoughts. So I busy <laughs> myself with um, constant activity to save uh, to save really looking into my own soul and hearing and seeing the whistling emptiness. Totally. Totally. I'm with you. Yeah. I have something also. much more shallow to say, which is that it's so boring when people are performatively workaholic. It is like talking about taxes or traffic. Like, spare me. But but having said that, and I couldn't associate myself more with those remarks, and yet <laughs> um, I really uh, – I, I, I really am attracted to people of focus – and process who, you know, the, the people we know who are very good at what they do, and I am, I am drawn to their, uh, um, whether it's musicians or comedians or um, writers, yeah. you know, that, that they have this sense of focus. I find that very attractive, but I don't, I don't yeah, think that's pro- the right, but process, Right, process is super interesting. It's very delightful yes. to talk to somebody who is great at their work and can explain it and clearly take joy in explaining it and understand what, what they're doing. That is... That's a that's why I did that working podcast a few years ago because I was so interested in that. But that that is something different than I think what what this article is getting at, which is some form of the the, sh- the it's show it's so showy what what this is talking about. Well, it's, it's so also showy. Not it's, not, about it's not even the about the work, creative yeah. or intellectual process. It's about like com- talking about how much you're working or literally like taking pictures of how much you're working. I mean, I'm inclined to just like blame Instagram and Facebook for this, um, but. I I have another question, though, about – I mean, I agree, John, with your dismissal of this as – or David as not our biggest problem in the workplace for sure and a fairly rarefied one. But I wonder if there's some relationship about number of hours and scheduling that does affect a larger pool of workers. I mean, we were just talking about Howard Schultz and Starbucks. One of the really bad things about Starbucks, which they fixed after um, the New York Times wrote about this, was the way in which they were forcing people to only find out their schedules at the very last minute. And this is a problem in a lot of big companies where the scheduling software doesn't tell you ahead of time which hours you're going to be working in the week and you have to constantly rearrange things. I literally don't know how people who have any kind of, you know, caretaking responsibilities of children or parents or whoever do this. It seems like it would be so stressful and hard. So, I mean, maybe that is just like a completely separate problem that uh, professional workers like – don't have. But I wonder if the expectation that people who work for law firms, for example, are going to be constantly, um, you know, at the beck and call of their clients has some relationship to this like huge load that more working class folks are bearing in terms of this idea that they can just like be constantly messed with in terms of when they're expected to go to work. All right. When you are at Starbucks and you're you're like, I would like a cocktail, but I can't get a cocktail because I'm at Starbucks. So I'm going to go to the bar next door and order a vodka tonic. John, in that circumstance, what will be, you be chattering about as you have that vodka tonic? Well, I'll be chattering, uh, chattering about Camelot's and uh, Kennedy versus Carter and the fight that broke the Democratic Party by John Ward. I talked to John for the CBS This Morning podcast, and uh, it's a the, the, the 1980 battle between Kennedy and Carter for the nomination of the party of a Democratic Party is so there's so much that's interesting about it, um, and that I think is also it's a good you know while people are are getting engaged and starting to get engaged in the 2020 race, looking back at that fight in the Democratic Party and 
what it was about. Um, a lot of it's very similar. Healthcare was a huge uh, part of the debate. And also the, the legacy of Ted Kennedy and, you know, the Kennedy family and Camelot and the kind of Democratic Party before the Clintons came on the scene and changed it. It's just a lot of rich, good American history and also electoral history that I think is useful uh, in our current moment. And then also you just have two really, I think, interesting characters. Jimmy Carter gets more interesting the more I know about him and his presidency too. And then, of course, Ted Kennedy with all of his uh, various seasons of his life being asked by Roger Mudd, you know, why do you want to be president? Again, you know, one of the great softball questions, but Kennedy's inability to really have an answer when it was obvious that it was going to be asked and when it was obvious that everybody thought, well, the reason he wants to be president is because his name's Kennedy and it's kind of what you do. And he's, and not being able to answer that question, um, it's anyway, just a lot of fascinating stuff. So I recommend it. Emily, when you're at the bar having that vodka tonic, what are you going to be chattering about? So I'm not normally someone for whom, like, the creepiness of mass surveillance, like, keeps me up at night. But there is this story in The Appeal and The Intercept this week that really got to me. It's by George Joseph and Debbie Nathan. It's about the idea that prisons across the United States are, as the headline says, quietly building databases of the voice prints of people who are in jail or prison. So first of all, I'd never heard of a voice print. But this is the idea that, like, if someone has you recorded... They can then recognize your voice saying lots of other things and, like, do a big search in a database for your voice. And the way that prisons are creating these big databases of voice prints are without consent, um, sometimes just, like, taking the the voice recordings of uh, people who are in prison or jail from their recorded phone calls. And sometimes by saying to them, if you don't, like, let us do this or even repeat certain phrases into voice rec- recognition software, we're not going to let you have calls with people in your family or visits from your family. Um, so the consent here just seems like... It is entirely missing. You know, it is true that jails and prisons have a lot of leeway in how they treat the people who um, reside in them. But this just seems like so deeply unfair. Um, And who knows what's going to happen to this huge database of voice prints and also who will be next. Um, But do we really want the government taking this way of recognizing um, our voices, people's voices, and, like, creating some huge new um, repository. Just, anyway, it got to me. Check it out. It's in The Intercept and The Appeal. So my chatter is, uh, it's an, it's, I, I'm going to do it ba- basically because John responded so derisively to a tweet of mine, and it made me think, like, well, you know what? It, that tweet had had heart behind it and had reason behind it. <laughs> And so the tweet I had – so I was talking to one of my colleagues about – who was writing a story about pistachios and how all pistachios in America essentially come from a single pistachio that was brought from Iran uh, some decades ago. That basically the entire commercial pistachio industry in the United States, which is now more than half of all pistachios in the grown, uh, comes from the single, the single nut. And she was, she was saying, actually, what's weird is that pistachios aren't nuts. And I was like, and they're not? And she said, no, they're they're droops. And it's like, what? What are you talking about? And so that prompted me to, to realize, like, actually, a whole bunch of things that we think of, of as nuts aren't nuts. And, and then I, so I 
my tweet was actually that everything is a fruit and nothing is a nut. And John derided me. But John, I just need to talk to you about nuts. Wait, for I a think second. you need to, the transcript of the derision to give people a full 360 degree view of this. What uh, was your deri- What was your derision? Tell me. Tell the world what your derision was. I can't remember. What it did I say? They shouldn't it, let you have your phone before the anesthesia kicks Exactly. In. Uh, so when you do a little bit of research, you realize nothing is a nut. There are no nuts. Everything that we talk about as a nut is not a nut. Is an almond a nut? No. An almond is a droop. A droop it's like a peach, basically. Is a walnut That's a nut? It's not a peach. Walnut is not a nut. Is a cashew a nut? No, a cashew is also a droop. Is a peanut a nut? No, a peanut's a legume. Pistachio is not a nut. A coconut is not a nut. Pine nut is not a nut. Macadamia nut is not a nut. Pecan is not a nut. Nothing that we call a nut is actually a nut. They are. What about a donut? A donut is a nut. A donut also not a nut. Uh, A lug nut is not a nut. (laughs) They are. They're, they People use the term casually because they have some of the same qualities as actual real nuts. The only nut that we use that is actually a nut is the hazelnut. The, of all the nuts in the world that people use, and chestnuts, hazelnuts and chestnuts are actual nuts. So I'm just irritated, irritated at this category of droop, a droop and... And well, first of all, if you it, were categorized as a droop, wouldn't you seek to be categorized as something else? Because, frankly, who wants to be? I mean, yeah. that guy's such a droop. Yes, <laughs> sure, that's also true. We, but it's yeah. it's it's frustrating. It's frustrating to me that I can make a very good point about nuts. And does John appreciate it? Does John recognize that actually we've been we've been duped? We've been drooped by all these. Dupes. <laughs> we've been drooped. We, we've but been the drooped. Thing is, these things are not nuts. And what are we going to do you... about that? <laughs> well, first so of all, glad I think we you have explained to... that Dada tweet of yours because it really made me wonder. <laughs> it was so not Platzian that tweet. I was like, what is going on with that man? Well, then I thought I was like, well, maybe that's... I should just list all the things that aren't nuts that we call nuts, but nothing is a nut. Yeah, well, that would. That would have been cool, but we would have deprived us of this uh, of this learning experience, shared learning experience. Um, the um, uh, you know, I think part of it is uh, is the kind of stranglehold that big nut has on um, has on our culture, and that's really where you have to put your energies to. Well, uh, big nut and these nut, these nuts have been going at it. They both they're two two industry <laughs> trade groups. All right. Okay. Let's go to well, listener. There we go. Let's go to listener <laughs> chatter. There's actually a great listener chatter this week, as there have been so many. So you've been tweeting to us at @slategabfest with your chatters. This one comes from at Real Ben Gilbert, and Real Ben Gilbert. Uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about un- needless words, words that are always part of phrases which you don't need. I can't. What was the example that we were using? We, someone, one of us used a phrase, and then we were like, "Oh, that's that's a redundant phrase." And so Ben Gilbert points us to an incredible list on Medium of phrases that are redundant, and it's magnificent. So, uh, I mean, free gift, uh, from whence, few in number, fellow countrymen, erupt violently, end result, uh, disappear from sight, general consensus, close proximity, closed fist. Oh, my God. Cameo appearance. (laughs) Uh, all-time record, advanced planning, advanced warning, absolutely certain. It's like thousands of them. Last of all, low ebb. Wow. Merge all together. of these are in politics. Mutual cooperation, orbit around, 
So you know what this Passing is? It's fad. the need for emphasis. It's why we all – it's why adverbs exist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sudden impulse. Oh, my God. The list is yeah. insane. <laughs> Undergraduate student. Graduate oh, no. student. No, actually, graduate student would not be. Anyway, no. it's it's fantastic. Thanks for that great list at Real Ben Gilbert. That is our show for today. The Political Gab Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researchers, Bridget Dunlap, June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest, on Facebook at facebook.com slash gabfest. Send us your chatters. Please come to our live shows March 27th in D.C. or April 12th in Charlottesville, slate.com slash live for tickets to those shows. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.